Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamometrics and your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Richard Leverett, Director of External Affairs for AT&T. As Director of External Affairs, Richard leads AT&T's local, state, and federal government relations and directs local philanthropic efforts in 21 northern Indiana counties, including the cities of Gary, Hammond, South Bend, Elkhart, and Fort Wayne. A registered state lobbyist in Indiana, Richard connects government policy and decision makers to AT&T initiatives around innovation in IoT, smart cities, digital literacy and inclusion, and IT workforce development. As AT&T builds FirstNet and expands small cell wireless technology for 5G across Indiana, Richard serves as a primary resource for public safety and city administrations as well. Richard previously served as Chief of Staff for Mayor Karen Freeman Wilson, where he oversaw day-to-day operations leading over 1,000 employees across city agencies, as well as leader of special initiatives, including the Smart Cities, Smart Communities Program under the Obama administration and the Youth Chicago Gary Urban Revitalization Project. As city attorney, Richard used his experience as an actuary to renegotiate employee benefits and insurance contracts on behalf of the city. Richard continues his civic and community service on behalf of AT&T, serving on the boards of the Legacy Foundation, Fort Wayne Urban League, and Action Chicago. He also serves as the president of the Fund for Hoosier Excellence and treasurer of the Drexel Foundation for Educational Excellence. Our conversation covers innovative approaches to public-private partnerships and the role of private sector partners in helping communities eliminate the digital divide. And now my conversation with Richard. Welcome back to Head of the Curve. Uh, today we have Richard Leverett on the sh- on the show. Um, he's the director of external affairs for AT and T, I believe, in state of Indiana. Is that right, Richard? Yes, yes. Right. AT&T, Indiana. AT and T, Indiana, specifically. And so, Richard and I have some background. We've we've done some work together um, in city of Gary under Mayor Karen Freeman Wilson. I think you were chief of staff there at City of Gary for a while. Is that right? Yeah. I remember when we first met, was I city attorney, a chief of staff or deputy chief of staff? But somewhere in that, I ended up chief of staff. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great place to start. Like, maybe you can just provide, like, you know, your current title and then just talk about your background a bit, specifically in the public sector Pursuing your pursuing your law degree, how you how you found yourself in Gary. Yeah, I can give you a little rundown. Great. That's perfect. Um, Thanks. It's always interesting how many times I've, I've told this story and how many different pieces and things that I remember later. But, you know, it was all in the shadows of, you know, the the mortgage crisis. And I was in law school and the markets were terrible. But there's a, there's a great public private partnership story that, that connects to that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was probably the funny story. I was growing up as a kid. I was probably the only eight year old you would find that said they wanted to be an actuary when they grew up. <laughs> um, in like the 80s. And so that was me. And I ended up actually working as an actuary. I was actually a consultant for a while. And I didn't quit that job to go to law school until I became invested in my pension plan. That's what I designed pension plans uh, back mm-hmm. there after undergrad. And so jumped into law school. At the time, uh, Mayor Freeman Wilson, she had just lost the campaign. Actually, when I was getting ready to start law school, we had worked on the campaign. It didn't work out. And I was like, you know, I'm going to law school. Um, and maybe I want to do public service work. Maybe not. We'll see. 
but I was really interested in sort of small business stuff, uh, entrepreneurial kind of kind of work, private equity, but also had the background in sort of ERISA, employee benefits, plan design, stuff like that. So I really paid attention to how companies interacted with people, how people interacted with companies they wanted to start, what that visioning looked like. Um, cool. And so that's that's sort of like my passion is all wrapped up in, in, in into mm-hmm. one. But I jumped into law school and the funny story I always talked about is at the University of Chicago Law School, South Side of Chicago. And I always said that, you know, there were there's so many people there who were who wanted to be and knew exactly what kind of lawyers they would be. They had lawyers in the family. I had none. I have one of the lawyers in the family now who followed me um, to law school a little bit later, about about 10 years after I did, uh, six cool. years after I did. But I had none in the family before then. So it was sort of a new experience for me, new experience for my family my, and some of my close friends and everything. And so I think I found it intellectually stimulating. I was curious about a lot of things in theory. And that's why it sells UFC, right? I really love law and econ, behavioral and all econ, how things connect it. But I didn't really latch on to the actual practice of law in that sense. Not litigation. You know, it, it just wasn't, you know, I would always joke with people who went to other law schools around me, some of my friends who are lawyers now, and say, I didn't take evidence. I didn't take criminal procedure um, mm-hmm. because those classes didn't interest me. But what did interest me in state local government. I grew up in Gary and University of Chicago Law School. I had actually, it's close, it's the closest law school to Gary, about 25 miles away. And so I actually moved back home to Gary and commuted on the train to USC. And as I was doing this, we had just came off a campaign and I wrote, you know, all of our, our, our policy stuff and what we were going to do. And it didn't work out, but I was still living in the city. And, you know, I had been back and looking at different things happening in the city, trying to figure out how do I make an impact there? And part of the impetus of going to law school was that as an actuary, no one knew what the hell I did. <laughs> so volunteering for something, yeah. looking for something it, it wasn't necessarily respect. It's a respected profession around that profession and within that sort of expertise, but not in general public. Right. You don't you're not going to even though they would be extremely useful. Actuaries weren't the most charismatic people and aren't the most charismatic people. And. Even if you did have a really bad pension crisis, you're not campaigning on that. Like, I, I know how to do this. I can fix this. Right. And so you were, it's not real like transition from being an actuary in the, in, the, in the politics or in the public service or even helping out the community in that way. Even volunteering at United Way. They're like, what the hell do I do to you? <laughs> for, ed- for edification of listeners, can you can you just define what an actuary is? <laughs> so, um, and, so the way I describe actuarial science, like the study of it, mm-hmm. it's like... Um, Accounting is, you know, adding numbers. <laughs> Finance is adding numbers with interest. Actuarial science is adding numbers with interest and contingency over time. And so it's, that's a crude thing. And, you know, my, my financial analysts and accounts might get mad. But <laughs> the way the, like the way you build on it and study it is I have a dollar, a dollar plus interest, a dollar plus interest and the idea that you might die before you get that dollar. And what what the present value that is, right? What's the present value of a life insurance policy if I give you $100 now and you pay me back when I die? Like, how much money right. would that be worth to you? And, and right. so, so it's like that basic mathematical question applied to an annuity of payments, a stream of payments over time, multiple streams, yeah. hundreds of thousands of streams when you're dealing with like a, a GM or United Airlines pension plan, right? It's all these different factors that come into play. So it's how do I mathematically manage that and calculate that? So that's what, I, that's what my undergraduate degree is in. We were on video. You see all these books behind me that <laughs> all or these like massive textbooks. 
I, love, I appreciate that. And so you were on the trajectory to tell me the story. So sorry to take you off the no, track. No, no. So, but I said that because these folks were using, and, and I came in an interesting time, right? It's the late nineties. I'm in high school, starting college in 99 and things are transitioning, right? I'm mean, thinking about how computing power is growing. You have these uh, software service systems popping up and people soft and, you know, all these sort of different systems popping up and people are looking at different ways to do this. But slightly before, like the people that were senior management when I started were doing a lot of these things by hand, by calculators. I still own about eight different financial calculators that if an average person picked it up, they would not know how to add two numbers together, let alone what the other buttons did. Right. And so I started off as a teenager. I had these things and like, you know, it's just it's just, you know, it's the it's, it's the the millennials. Like I'm, I'm an elder millennial. I had like same, yeah. you know, protractors and graphing calculators and end of school with iPhones, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. things changed on us. And so the whole industry was changing. And alongside that, the pension world was changing. Uh, we were entering a time where, you know, my, my biggest projects as a as an early associate were helping companies eliminate their pension plans. And that really touched on me and it really helped shape where I sit now from a fundamental standpoint as a policy person and as a, um, as a citizen, we eliminated a lot of income security for a certain generations by eliminating pensions. And that was a driving factor for me because I had family. My wife at the time was trying to teach in Gary and I'm looking at their benefits and how it's structured and, and the compensation and other things. I'm like, this is not geared towards building, building up your, your, your school system. It's not building up, building up the community, right? You're, your plan is either, you know, uh, something that the something that you're trying to cut because of budget reasons, or it's something that the union wants just because of strength reasons. But it really has nothing to do with like what's the best model to attract, recruit, and retain our best talent. And yeah. that was missing from like that. A, yeah, like it's not a people oriented approach. Yeah, and and and, 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 and and I'm not anti union at all, but that's just a situation they had to negotiate themselves into. And overall, mm-hmm. there was this major push. In the early 2000s, maybe it started before then, not, but then it was new to me that you wanted to privatize Social Security. And people kept saying, hey, we should you know, make this money available. We, like Companies are shifting to 401ks now. This is pension balances off the book because they can't make the contributions. Cities like Houston, St. Louis were struggling with these things. And that's how I ended up. You know, th- These are the questions I was trying to answer in my head. How do I participate in this environment, in this, this policy mm-hmm. conversations as an actuary? And I couldn't. You know, you have a profession that was defined as non-charismatic. So I had to wait four to five years before I went into, before I got training on how to present what we did to clients. And I was like, I, I have fun with clients now and dinners and different things like that. They like my <laughs> presentations, but I can't formally do it for the company until I wait four years and then go to Philadelphia for this training. So I'm like, oh, I'm out. Of, I'm out of this. I'm out of this gear. I got to switch to something yeah. else. Yeah, oh. move too, moving too slow for you, it sounds right. like. <laughs> so I ended up in law school because I really just wanted a, a degree that challenged me and that people would respect. Like, people just had to listen to me. I had the JD after my name. <laughs> and I'm going to go to the top three school, right, and I'm going to do this. And, 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 you know, it sounded crazy in the moment, but the more I read about people who just go to Harvard so they can write Law & Order shows and episodes <laughs> uh, or, or books, you know, it kind of fit, right? So I went. Sure. So I'm trying to test this out now. After several mm-hmm. podcasts of telling the story, different things. Let's say I went to University of Chicago so I could talk economics to, you know, um, debunk conservative theories. 
Right. That's that's why I did it. Right? I wanted to be able to hold my ground in any argument possible. And I think the school did a great job at that. And so that's where I am. That's where I am in life uh, right now. I love but, you know, no, my, no, my job now, I am. My title on paper is uh, on my card, Director of External Affairs, AT&T, Indiana. So you got pulled into Gary government, chief of staff, city attorney, how that went down and then how you ended up with AT&T. So, you know, I, I said before, you know, the mayor and I had worked on our early campaign. I was, I was, I was finishing law school. She said she was going to run again. And so I'm like, well, I'm, I'm down. Let's, let's do this again. We revisit the same things and tweak some things, tweak some things in our plan. But, you know, the political environment had changed a bit. And I think that she was coming in at the right time and the right moment and momentum. And mm-hmm. so we ran, we won. And I was going to, you know, I joined the administration. I, you know, I had a political talk radio show. I was doing a bunch of different things, but I was just advising the administration at first. And it's like, okay, some projects, I need you to jump in and fill some roles. I was like, no, not that role, not this role. Okay, cool. I'll just come in. I'll just handle some high level projects for a few months and I'll jump back to the private sector. Cause I didn't really want to work in government. I just wanted to advise and do things. And I was right. doing that for a few months in the administration, but she's like, no, I need you on board now. So I was like, okay, okay. Three months, three months tops, three and a half months, maybe four months. And then boom, it was like four years, right? <laughs> and so we had this great time of, I don't know, the podcast, you want to talk about public-private partnerships, but mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's a very particular large industry now. But there's, I want to talk about lowercase public-private partnerships. Yeah. That's the first thing saying. we're sort of working on is that how does this school connect to private companies or how do, how do, how do I mean, how do we, this administration connect to schools, connect to private industry? And we came up with innovative ways. One of those ways I modeled after, this is one of my favorite examples of a public-private partnership, lowercase public-private partnership, civic engagement, is a civic consulting alliance in Chicago. So after law school, I ended up working for them for a bit. I had a fellowship there. Some of my best friends come from there. You know um, you know, you, you know, know a few of them. But it, it, it's about, I have companies within my city with talent, whether it's HR talent in-house, whether it's consulting team, it's consulting talent. And, you know, they work on projects for profit and they do that, but they also want to volunteer time to be effective within the city and uh, unite your nonprofits, your United Ways, your uh, food banks. They might not have the power to hire a consultant to come in to fix a administrative issue or a planning issue or something like that. But these companies can loan talent to them. You need an accountant for a big problem. You don't have to spend a hundred grand on a, on, on a firm like mine. I'm just going to, you know, we're going to do the services pro bono. And lawyers do it all the time, right? And that's just the thing. But what about accountants? What about business consultants? What about uh, project planners? You know, what about um, people in change management, implementation stuff, right? How do you how do you make some impact within government when you need to make change? And that's actually could be a hundred thousand dollar project or something like that, or even more from a people standpoint. And you can't justify that to your citizens. Oh, we change from we change exactly. we change our busing route from this to this, or we realigned our delivery of these services based on this plan, but you don't usually have the guns of uh, Amazon to do logistics at a city level. You, you don't, you don't have that kind of weight within city budgets to sort of spend money on stuff like that. And it's like a fungibility issue too, right? Like, like you were saying with the citizens, like you can't act on the fly, even though it moves all the necessary initiatives forward. Right. Right. I mean, is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, for, for sure. For sure. And there's so yeah. many rules about government procurement, things like that. So these volunteer services or volunteer expertise, consultants, executives on loan or work in cities is what we want to tap into. The other thing is that we also want to tap into the student population, right? How do I, 
look at some of the college campuses around, whether it's Indiana University Northwest or University of Chicago, the Harris School of Public Policy or the law school there or Valparaiso Law School. How do I tap into these programs to get talent within City Hall? Because we don't have enough money to hire all the people we need. So one of the first things I did at City Hall, we revamped all of our internship programs. We built out the Harris School Public Policy Program with Mayor Daly and his team. And so we had, you know, um, 10 to 15 students a quarter, three times a year coming into, and some of us hang over and do more. So we had a, we had a, we had a ton of students coming in from University of Chicago Harris School to work in Gary. IUN students coming in and building out actual programs. Um, yeah. Operational law students coming in and actually, you know, revamping that program and what it looks like. And that's a form of public-private partnership because we we can't scale up. We had we had no money. We had to cut salaries. We were on furlough days, and what we needed to get stuff done quickly. And so, how do I get that talent? How do I build a program that helps us recruit and retain talent within the city? So part of it was sort of that initial piece for me, right? Building this coalition, and we had this great thing. I think I'm pretty sure you have a pen. It's our team Gary model that we we had back in um, you know 2012, 13, 14. Yeah. For Gary. yeah. And it was big. Everyone had a pen. You asked about the pen. I gave you a pen. I put it on you. Part of team Gary. <laughs> whatever, whatever you could offer in terms of assistance, we were willing to listen, you know, do the extra work and hours to see how you can make the city better. The hustle and the grit is unsurpassed. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it was it was a way. You know, there was a point where people would get, we'd be out. And I remember a, a couple of like family and friend barbecues where Someone who didn't know about Gary came to the city and they thing, you know, they might be trying to leave and someone's spouse is staring at me because I'm sitting there pitching them on the idea to come work with us. <laughs> you stop doing that. It's like, hey, man, I need I'm recruiting. I'm always recruiting new people. We need more. People. And so that's what I did. And I think when we, when we met, actually, I, I had left, but they brought me in as a close. Like, we got to get Nigel on board. You gotta get brought. <laughs> everyone has to meet you. Like, everyone has to meet you. You got to recruit them to come here. <laughs> um, so that, that that was me. I was a closer on getting people sold on on using their time and, and committing to Gary from a from intellectual standpoint, from a fun academic standpoint, whatever it might have been. It, it was made it happen. Time. Like sell it, right? Um, and, yeah, and, 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 yeah. It, it really came from the mayor, right? You know, she's just so personal. When people wanted to be around her and wanted to um work with her in that sense, and she was uh really caring, like like can mm-hmm. be super intellectual, understand things. She has Harvard JD, Harvard economics degree. But really want to make every decision we made about the people. Um, and I love that because I did not want to make every decision about the people. And we could we could barter and debate ideas all the time. <laughs> We're back in touch with her. She's I think she's head of the Urban League in Chicago yeah, now, right? Chicago Urban League. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Um, I think uh, Natalie from our team is pro- is going to podcast with her sometime in the near future. That should pretty be pretty awesome. exciting. Yeah. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll look at that one. Yeah, I, I'll send you some uh, some some questions to get her. To get her laugh. Yeah, yeah, that sounds perfect. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing I found out, and, and this just goes back to, you know, talking about structure of pay over time and what I knew mm. from being an actuary, like the loss of income security across the economy. And a lot of things that shifted in terms of American politics and understanding how that affected things down at a city level. And people don't understand this about Gary. Like we're not, you can put us in a category on paper with a city like Detroit or Flint. More, more, more along the lines of Flint, Toledo, uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, you know, um, places that like lost their steel mills and they're trying to recover and rebuild. Pittsburgh, mm. that never happened to Gary. We get invited to all the Rust Belt conferences, but we didn't, we lost jobs, but we didn't lose companies in that way, right? Mm. Like the company scaled down, they didn't need as much, 
but they're just as profitable now as they were then. U.S. Steel's uh, operations in Gary are still one of the largest in, in the country. Didn't they just put like $750 billion into it or something like that? Uh, and, and they can put up to, and the plan is they can they can spend up to $2 billion with a tax abatement oh. from the state. Oh, my bad. It's $750 million, I think. Yeah, $750 million, But it, they can extend that up to, with the same credits, they can invest up to $2 billion without incurring any additional costs. Right, so they're leaning, they're leaning, they're leaning into that right now, right? Right, right, and, and that that's part of the strategy. Indiana, as a state, subsidizes jobs. Sounds crazy. Yeah, unpack it a little bit, but there's a very, very um, robust industry around economic development. It happens around the country. You're competing for jobs. It's just a jobs war and books on that. But Indiana has Indiana Economic Development Corporation, and they, and they, and they use a lot of money to recruit companies here. And that means personal property tax abatements, lower property taxes. There's a shift that happened in around the early, early 2000s is when the momentum started gaining for it. But Indiana shifted from you know, localities having the ability to levy their assessments. And mm-hmm. Indiana went to property tax caps statewide. One, two, and three percent. One percent residential, two percent business rental, uh, and three percent business industrial. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a major tax burden that shifted to homeowners. Mm-hmm. You had to cover that gap. You had to, it was a cap on businesses. Not to dive too much into another company, but U.S. Steel again, not only fought for those caps, but they also fought for the right to self-assess, mm-hmm. meaning that no local politician or local entity could tell you what that company's worth. They would just tell you what it was worth and then pay their bill based on that. That has saved them about one point two billion dollars over the last fifteen years or so in taxes. And I'm not saying that's a tax company. It's, 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 I mean, I'm. I'm a, I'm a corporate lobbyist. Their lobbyists did a great work. It makes sense from a business standpoint for them. But that that was $1.1 billion in tax dollars going to local communities, including Gary. Vast yeah. Gary. And so you have this city that was built by this company, founded by the CEO of the company. The city of Gary was founded by the you know, CEO of U.S. Steel. Built mm-hmm. It grew into this massive place, like in 1960s, 50s, 60s. 60s, it was the number one school district in the country, highest paying, had like these high tech, you know, like high tech for the time buildings and these, you know, massive facilities all built on the backs of the steel mill. People were coming, coming here to a ton of jobs that they're paying off a ton of income. I mean, a ton of taxes, but the total economy shifted right in America. That's not what we do anymore. We don't tax companies. We allow the companies to sort of operate, lower taxes for them, pay your employees, and we tax the employees on a use basis. From a political standpoint, that's extremely regressive. Yeah. But that's where we are, right? Mm-hmm. Lower taxes, lower taxes for companies. You want to encourage them to hire people and then let people pick and choose what they want to do and then they'll pay the taxes through that, right? It's every it's, a, it's, it's like a passing everything through the employee. It's, it's cost shifting, right? And, and that's, that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a component to the divergence of, you know, income categories nationwide. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We're shifting that we're shifting the burden down on the people. And so linking it back before full circle to, to my earlier career as, a, as, as an actuary, the terminology was employee driven. Anything you're involved in with your with a job, or whatever you hear the phrase employee driven. That means before we pull the loss and the gains from this. But the advantages to us are to get rid of that off our books and shift it to you. We're shifting the burden from the company to you. So employee driven usually means I don't want to have this on my books anymore. I'm going to shift it to you. Same thing with the pension plans. It's kind of simple how it happened. It's it's 
instead of paying, you know, uh, instead of promising to pay you 500 a month times the number of years you worked here, I'm going to say, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars now and it'll grow and pool over time in your, your account, or I'll give you a percentage of your salary every year and you just have that. And I don't have anything on the books after that. It's just you. I'll give you the money and put an account for you. It's 401k. I'll put an account for you and I'll send you to manage. It's employee driven. It's your choice. You do it. But that gets sounds- all the liability off my books and all the future promises off my books. <laughs> and it sounds, it's very good. It's very well worded because it makes it seem like, you, that, you know, you're being empowered. Right. So, so you, you but, fast, so you fast forward like 10 years for me into another career, into another space. And what do I see when I'm in city of Gary uh, working there? You know, I've seen employees who are by and large, like very unhealthy, mm. very, mm. very low pay. And they can't mm. retire because the state of Indiana got rid of their pension plans for the state and just has a cash contribution. So you get a percentage of your salary put aside, but if you've worked, 25 years and only made 30 grand a year, your 403B plan, 401k plan does not have enough money in it for you to actually live on. Yeah. You'd be 55 with, you know, 20 years of service, 30 years of service. You can't retire. You got 10 years, you got 10 years of bills in the bank or something, right? Right, right, right. right. You, You can't do that. You can't pay for your insurance. So then there's this whole concept of, I have a number of employees in this majority black community, majority black city, all the health all the health disparities around, we we own all of those present in my my retire my my, uh, my medical plan, and I'm trying to manage it for the city, and we're spending about a million dollars or a million and a half dollars a month on 700 people. Wow! Right? I have, and you know, I'm going through these numbers and. It's not a thing you can talk about because I know I, I know I know the plan. I'm managing it with the insurance company, you know, and so I can't broadcast this around the city because we know people are sick. It's it's very close environment and HIPAA rules and a bunch of other stuff. So figuring out how do we how do we manage this differently? Throwing that aside from a tech standpoint, I may have had a data clerk in the budget, but that data that, that data clerk position was written in the 80s or 90s, even early sure. 2000s. You fast forward to 2013, 2014. That job requires something completely different. Mm-hmm. I have people who have Excel in front of them and they treat it as if it's a note card writing check marks on. They don't know that they can add numbers in there. They, can, they don't know it like spreadsheet management. Sure. You know, there, there's some 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 departments. They had people who were keeping an Excel spreadsheet, but they would delete it every day and start over with a new list. And, and you just like no one had ever been around to teach sort of how to use this software. Uh, how to use the track things or how to use Microsoft Access, any of these things, right? So we just had, we had a complete ground up. So I started these things like like tech conversations with our IT director where we were training people. You know, once a week we have a session, like come and ask any computer questions you have. We're going to go through and every, make sure everyone knows proper data management, how to use the software, what these things are for, how to, how to how to do these things. You know, very, very small conversations, like bring your lunch to the room, Come up and just ask questions and figure this out, right? We train some people on it. If you want to get Microsoft certification or something like that, go ahead and do that. We'll set that up for you. But really, it's just about asking your questions and seeing how to work. And so as we transition into that space, same time, we're juggling two things, right? We're in the IoT space. We're in the innovation space. I'm at the same time looking at how do we launch apps? How do we get better data tracking? And this is what we're using those other students and extra folks from the, from the partnership side to do, right? We're 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 all over the space. So... You know, um, we use the guys from, um, oh, I forget the name of the company now, 
Detroit. Like we use Code for America a lot, but we didn't have the local. Was it local data? Local data. Yep. Um, but they they all started off as something else and then grew in. I mean, transformed into that. So local data was a partnership we had. Um, we pulled some folks in from New Orleans, Detroit. Um, just different teams that have been assembled around the, around the country doing civic projects. And I would literally be on YouTube or on Twitter, the Code for America conversations, the calls, and I would just reach out and say, "Hey, I'm in Geary. I don't have you know 200 grand to pay for a fellow for a year and house them here and integrate them in the community. But you have a product, and I have a problem. Let's talk." Mm-hmm. And so instead of paying 200 grand for this great fellowship initiative, I'm waiting a year later, finding their solution, tweaking it with them a bit. And paying fifteen hundred to deploy that in Gary, or sometimes just hey, it'll be free. I'll give you access to our data, or you can have access to the city, whatever you want access to me, and you can promote it after that, make something marketable, right? And so that's what we were mm-hmm. doing, mm-hmm. right, all across the board. And you were involved in some of those things, in those conversations, and those data sets for sure. Absolutely. Um, and and that's just what it was. Right, we had problems and we needed a way to solve them and collect this information at the same time on the insurance side. I'm dealing with these like macro questions that have very, very micro and impactful in the day-to-day lives of people. Right. So at the same time, I'm figuring out we have this open data set and we have an app that can track all the houses and their, and the quality of them, whether like the, the band, the level of abandonment, trying to rank all the houses within the city, all of them completely surveyed on an app on the phone. I have to talk to someone who's actually living next to the house. And I think during this time I'm at my, you know, my, my wife's grandmother's house for, for, for Thanksgiving. And there's a, we're, we're playing football in the yard and we end up finding out that the neighbor, you know, didn't have any lights, gas or power and, and passed it frozen in the house. Right. Mm. And so, we, so it's, there's a real element to this. Right. And so it's this one textile, this is cool tracking houses, but it's also this real thing. Right. We also, you know, had the situation with the serial killer, Dan Van, who found out he was burying bodies in abandoned houses. So you have this sort of like this, oh, this is really cool. And it's like, oh, this is really, this is real. Yeah. Um, and then I, I roll back and I'm, I'm I'm dealing with like, oh, these macro questions about how do I get the cost down? And I don't know how to get the cost down. I did that for private companies for years, right? But mm-hmm. I can't go in and say, hey, we're going to increase the contribution on your medical plan or we're going to stop doing this because we don't have money to give them a raise. And so when I'm talking, when I'm talking to my consultants and my insurance brokers in, in Gary is very different than when I'm talking to, you know, a fortune 100 corporation or a fortune 100 corporation is talking to me about how to get their costs down. Right. I, all the factors are still there, but in Gary, I can't say, Oh, we're going to increase contribution this year, change this part of the plan, eliminate this part of coverage because I still have 700 of my neighbors, my coworkers, who can't get a raise, who haven't been able to pay bills, who were dragged into court because, you know, in past administrations, there was no cash to pay the employee, the employer portion. How do I fix right. it? And so one crazy public-private partnership, we went to, um, went out to bid on some things and start talking to Cigna. And, you know, we, we worked out a plan where, you know, we went on fully insured for a while and to help to get the plan costs in order. But if you know anything about insurance costs, you want them to be around 80% of the premium you're paying. We were at 120% two months in. Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we had so many losses because there are people who never had confidence in the insurance plan. So they never went to the doctor. 
But when we got a car, we, we, we partnered with a company that had their name on their card and doctors, hospitals, people respected that and said, oh, I'm going to take you as a client. They believe I can go there and get coverage. That changed mm-hmm. things. And so it was almost like we were dealing with like a underinsured population that just didn't know it. There were some. These are the, this is your is, and this is your your city employees and those employees, retired. Right. Yeah, this employees. So I, so like your, your employees also are your citizens. Yep. And, 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 and you you're embodying what they're doing, but you're not just a regular employer. Right. You're, you're serving both roles. Like I'm all, I'm trying to take care of my city. But I'm also at the same time trying to take care of the city finances. How do I do that? How do I manage that? At this sort of level, it's very difficult. And, and, and there's some tough questions. And, and Amir and I had tough conversations around that. But it took it took public private partnerships and unique new public private partnerships to sort of sort of get us out of that. Um, I think and you just, so you did get out. You guys like how did you how did it rectify? You you guys actually pulled it off. Yeah, you know, it took some planning and you had the right partners at the table. But but they walked through like, okay, here's what you can change this year. Here's how to get people healthier. Here's, you know, get start walking uh-huh. groups, start these things and subsidize the gym plan, you know, um, yes. sending out emails about food, diet, those kind of things, certain nutrition, you know, uh, bringing the right financial planners in to help people sort of see, oh, if I, mm-hmm. I, I'm i old enough, I can use this part of Medicare and this thing and I plan the right plans in place, I can actually can retire, right? And getting those things in place. But it, it took a lot of hard, it was a lot of hard conversations and it was a lot of just like X's and O's, right? Just executing like, what how do how do how do I follow these steps? The same thing I learned from the private sector though, you can influence people, you give them confidence, give them confidence in their decision making, and they can make their own decisions in life. But if you when we had times when, you know, with furlough days, other things like that, when in big times when City Gary lost money, there are some people who didn't know if they would get paid. You know, there are times we had to switch the paper checks because we couldn't do direct deposit because of the cash flow. Once you establish a level of confidence, people start to sort of be able to rely on it and plan around it. And that's where we wanted to get to. And we had to ramp up and do it fast. And everyone that helped us out with it, you know, wasn't a paid employee. We had a lot of talent from outside private industry, you know, um, some major corporations around. I had some HR compliance things with a new HR director. And I said, hey, listen, I I used to work for a company that could do this. We build it probably four or five hundred dollars an hour. I can't go to them. I can't ask them for free services, but you know, you're a major corporation in this area. We have a relationship here. I just need to send my people to your HR training as it, mm-hmm. as, as it goes on, you know, maybe a call a month just in general, but in the HR compliance training you have, can I send my people there with you? If anything confidential comes up, then, you know, we can, we don't have to be involved in that, but just like the general here, the HR changes here, the compliance changes, understanding FMLA, or some HIPAA rules, whatever it might be, I just want my people trained on it because we so can't. Like, and so yeah, they, were, they were like, sure, yes, mm-hmm. it's just, uh, you know, this was, you know, eight years ago now, but before everyone was on Zoom, just hop on a conference call and we'll walk through the changes with you. We'll send you a worksheet. We'll show you how to do these things. And that was yeah. just already within their bottom line what they were doing. So and you're so, starting, so you're totally starting to, oh, sorry, I want you to finish, but you're ahead. totally starting to paint that picture for me of, of how you, your innovative experience in building public-private partnership to help Gary. That's the stories you're telling. Like, that's my takeaways right now is like, you were in such a tough financial position within the city. You were leveraging the private sector to basically like build out the, uh, the bandwidth you needed in the city 
through strategic and innovative partnerships, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love it. <laughs> so, so, so that that was that, that was a lot of it, right? And, and there's these like massive policy questions. Um, uh-huh. I just found interesting, but you know, the way I ended up at AT and T and leaving that that fun life is that um, there was a potential for public private partnership. You know, you yep. have this tech space and and sort of you know what we're sort of dealing with now in terms of who has internet access in 2014. Some execs from AT and T approached the city of Gary in the mayor's office um, to talk about high speed internet, like gigabit speed fiber. And at the time, um, you know, AT and T was planning this massive investment in certain cities around fiber to the home, gigabit speeds at your house, like fiber directly to the house. Yeah. And so they said, "Hey, Gary's going to be involved in this investment." And so I wasn't even in the meeting. I heard this, and I come into the room like, "Hey." Let's talk about this. This is amazing. You know, this is like Louisville's, Louisville's was trying, everybody's trying to come to Google city. I think some cities said they're going to change their name to Google. Um, like, oh, we, we want, we want fiber here with fiber city, fiber community. It's like, this is incredible. Right. I'm like, we're going to get fiber here. We're not spending money on it. We can market this. Like, yeah, it's going to be a great project. I'm like, oh, this means a ton. I got these other tech projects going on. We start these hackathons. We're doing open data stuff. And the guy from AT&T is like, yeah, man, it sounds amazing. And the mayor's like, oh, y'all got something in common. They're like, what? It's like, you know, it was a guy named Bill, a guy named Steve. It's like, oh, they went to Butler too. And I was like, I went to Butler. We start talking about basketball and everything. She's like, okay, I got to go to another meeting. Y'all get out of my office. So, hey, guys, come to my office. They come to my office. I have the Butler Way written across written across my board to support the athletic programs. It's up there on my on my whiteboard. And I know you, you, may, have, you may have seen it. Sure. You know, it's there on the wall and it's the man's commitment, denies selfishness, accepts reality, yet seeks improvement every day while putting the team above self. That's what it is. Right. And yeah. it's on my wall. Yeah. They love that. In addition, I have stickers from all these tech companies I'm working on around my computer, on my desk in different places. The office is a mess, but I'm trying to give you like the inspirational picture of it. Right. It's just <laughs> it's yeah. like, bam, man, this is a lot of ideas in here. I feel the energy. Right. Yeah. So that's, what, that's what it looks like. So we just, we, we chat some more in there, laugh it up and say, okay, um, that happens. Like that's maybe like a Tuesday or something. So Friday morning rolls around. I get a phone call from Bill Source. He's the state president for at t Indiana. And he says, hey, you know, I, I got a role to fill and I'm looking for someone who can sort of dabble in this space and do these other things. I was like, you know, what? I got to, you know, we talked. I got a list of people. Let me look at some things. He's like, no, 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 no. I don't think you understand me. I was like, what's up? He's like, I want you. I was like, hmm. <laughs> Okay. okay. There, said, I'll, be back, I'll, be, I'll be back in town in a couple of weeks. I said, I'll talk about it. You know, we sat down, we had coffee at Starbucks and I was hired the next day. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. And so you're working from the government angle one day, the next day you're, you know, you're within the AT&T framework, corporate framework. And so tell me about, tell me about that work because that's what you're doing now. What are the, some of the initiatives, maybe like a case study, like an example initiative that you're working in you know, a South Bend or a Fort Wayne or a Gary or whatever, just maybe some stories, but also is it similar to what you were doing when you're at the city? Like, are you still building those innovative partnerships? Like I'm, I'm just, I'm really curious about like a corporate partner in the municipal yeah. world. So it, with it, your it's, background, like it's, it's really interesting. To a certain extent, I try to build those innovative partnerships, but I'm on a different mm-hmm. side now. And so, my division of AT&T as external legislative affairs, which gives me access to 
our corporate dollars that actually go into the community. And so whether it's a United Way sponsorship or this new coding school or a community foundation event or chamber of commerce event. But one thing that we did, because so the timing wise, I was actually brought on. My first initiative was Gary Hammond, South Bend. We're launching fiber to the home. I need you to walk in the city hall and make that important just the way you felt about it. Get them as excited about it as you were excited about it when we talked to you. Mm, okay, easy. That's cool. Let's have press conferences in all the communities. Mayors come out, shake hands, high speed fire, but get people signed up. That's easy. The other thing is that it's a lot of conversation about it now, but even then we're talking, how do we close the digital divide? Mm-hmm. Well, people don't realize, and, we, and this is my, my, I just approached my sixth year at AT&T now. So we're talking about access, affordability, and literacy. Lots of folks have conversations on access. I need to build this here, build this there. You hear a lot of conversations about rural broadband. I don't do a lot of rural work, but I am in touch with that and some of the plans that happen around it. And I'm in conversations about how to deploy rural broadband all the time. Affordability is the same sort of same thing. You know, federal programs in place, states and localities try to put things in place to sort of subsidize it. A lot of school districts are doing it. Now we're having conversations about what that looks like to sort of get, you know, a wireless uh, wireless device in someone's home or if they can't plug in at the house to make sure everyone has a a, a laptop, a Chromebook or something like that where it has a mm-hmm. has a wireless card in it where they can access the Internet. Those come down on a demand basis to have those conversations and innovate there. The part that I really care about from a digital device standpoint, what I, what's become a passion of mine is the digital literacy piece. As we started in Gary, I can spend money and put a computer in front of you. I knew this with my employees. I knew this with students there. We've been putting computers in front of people as long as there've been computers to buy. And that's how Dale grew, like selling government computers, right? Like you have these, we're, we're putting computers in front of people. Mm-hmm. That person might not know what to do with that computer. And if you, if you don't spend money on teaching them, how will they learn it? Same problem I had in Gary, still bring this full circle, right? And so in the digital literacy space, the initial thing we jumped on at t is that let's make this important to everyone. This is an economic development thing. So we started in like sort of this middle, middle space where we weren't really dealing with kids and children necessarily, but we're taking our economic development folks. We're taking people who are involved in, you know, city government innovation and let's pull them together. Let's pull some high-level government officials in this too. We had this uh, event. We called it um, Tech Friday, but it was it was that Fast Friday at the Indianapolis 500, the Friday when, when they do all the time trials. And we just sure. decided to invite as many people in the tech and economic development space as we could. And we create these synergies where you may have heard of a co-working space before, but maybe you didn't know anyone. Here's someone who's in a co-working space. Here's someone that's doing economic development. Here's someone teaching coding classes. And here's someone that's doing hackathons in that space. And so we're all across the board in that and pushing these things. And so we end up with about seven different co-working spaces across the state being founded off the conversations that we had introducing people to the concept and what it could mean for a downtown community, for a tech community, for like creating a physical space for people who are virtual friends or trying to pull together, like creating an actual meeting space for folks. So we did that. Mm -hmm. And so the next step for me was how to get this to trickle down. So if I have you know, small business owners or people in tech company, people doing uh, social media marketing, whatever, locating the same space, talking about these ideas, people coming up with new ideas, job retraining programs. How do I get this down into the, you know, the the younger students? I had yeah. a partner in Chicago um, who I knew through a, uh, through a law school friend uh, who started a place called Blue 1647. 
And it was a coding school and co-working space and art center and community center all in one. And so you had eight-year-old kids coming there to play Minecraft and learn how to do things. You had 13, 14-year-olds starting businesses. They were actually selling and creating digital media for companies downtown mm-hmm. Chicago. You had people who were you know, running their own business, but also teaching the classes to these kids in there for free. You had other people coming in and renting the space out to have sort of event plan, uh, event thing. So it's all these things sort of happening. You need an office That's, for a day. You're a freelancer. You need an office for a day, something like that, mom and pop, whatever, whatever it might be. So it's all there. And it, it had a yeah. because I walked in this place and it's not like the suburban place I go to or the college campus place I go to in Indiana. This place is on the south side of Chicago and there's graffiti on the wall and I can get tacos for lunch there. And it's, it's all amazing, right? It's just a completely different feel. Something I'm really curious about in this whole process. So, so you're in this position where you get to, you get to synergize these environments. You get to engage with the local communities, like the engagement, like the deal making side of it. Like you brush on it on the front end there when you said, walk into these, to the mayors and the leadership and make it as important as you, you knew it was that day when the AT&T folks walked into Gary, right? Like, are, are you that guy? Like, is that like the key to the deal making process or like how do you decide how to engage right and make it important and then decide where to put the resources to make it come to fruition well part of it is uh, I get a I get a list of priority items and a budget that comes <laughs> <laughs> well that's it for my corporate right, office right. here's what we're doing this year but, but, but you know there, there there's a there's a cycle of that right we Try to maintain relevance as as as, as a company uh, and be involved. And this is just an interesting time, you know. Last year, when COVID happened, and everyone was immediately at home. You saw overnight, like a, almost a forty percent increase in internet usage. Exactly, and we and we and we, we absorbed it. Right, the industry absorbed it. You see, very few industries that can that can overnight take on forty percent more capacity, and that's sort of what we did. And now we're in this battle like, well, how do we make it more affordable? How do we give people more access? How do we do literacy? And we're like, okay, we'll come to the table with that. We'll come to the table with ideas. We'll work with different partners. The Urban League, the National Urban League just released a report about how to close the literacy gap and um, d- digital literacy um, or digital divide. We were partners in that. You know, um, we we sort of helped sort of push that to help get communities ideas around it. That's published, that's published ideas like, because we can't. Uh, we have a lot of people like me at AT&T, but we can't be everywhere. We can't lead every conversation. So we want to have, we want to be able to influence these conversations to talk about how do we do this, right? We spend almost $150 billion on infrastructure annually. You know, no one spends more on public infrastructure than AT&T does. In the state of Indiana alone, we spend almost $2 billion every three years on infrastructure. And how do we get more of it? How do we get more spending? How do you help the government spend more and, and get more things solved for people. All those sure. are big policy questions and we engage where we can. And, you know, I, I love the job. I love the company, but a lot of it is, it just fits with me from a philosophical standpoint. And I'm able to do some things, you know, our, our, our CEO business roundtable, we're talking five years ago now, four, four years mm-hmm. ago was first I know of, you know, um, Fortune, you know, say Fortune 100 CEO to speak on Black Lives Matter, to say it actually, this matters. 
This 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 well, is the issue and it matters, right? And this is before, you know, before last year, before everyone was sitting at home to watch and see and people come out and say something, before it became something you could sell and push down to corporations and you had that happen. Yeah, I mean it it's gotta be such a such a difference. I mean, well that that's a really that's a really interesting piece from the corporate side. I I didn't know that that the eyes were the eyes were open that early in AT and T. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, and, and so part of I mean, and, and it's not saying that everyone's eyes were open, but the CEO spoke, <laughs> the CEO spoke about it, right? And so when Randall Stevens did that, a lot of people asked questions like, "What are we? How are we doing this? What what was actually happening here?" And we we're still having those same conversations internally within the company, and I love that part of it, right? But that also reflects on. Who I am in community, and I and I, and I tell I, I'm openly say this with my my coworkers. I didn't start talking about police brutality last year right. in my official role at AT and T. I didn't start talking about diversity on boards last mm-hmm. year. Right. I didn't start mentioning it. Right? It was my leading conversation. I go into communities and like it's interesting that I'm here and AT and T has placed me here. Right? My job has placed me in this room, but I am I, if I'm in a room with 50 to 100 other business leaders and I'm the only black person here and I just yeah. got here. Right. What have you all been doing? Right. And you look at you, and and you that because I've worked for a <laughs> massive corporation with billions and billions of dollars <laughs> and, I, and I have protection from that, right? I mean, it, 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 you know, push the envelope a bit. Yeah, and you look at the, and you look at that room and then you look at the, the actual like ethnicities, racial makeup of the city that you're probably sitting in. And it's definitely not what that room looks like. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, and so that's mm-hmm. one thing I've sort of been able to do um, is sort of leverage my position to get the right people meeting each other. Um, yeah. and I, I love that. I love that part of the job. I love that I can take a business owner or a philanthropist and introduce them to somebody with an idea and help fund that, help get it going. Amazing idea of introducing a community member with the mayor who has an issue. Um, this is all the same time. I'm still introducing my, my salespeople to them as well, and we're still doing business. It's, but it's so it, cool, it, man! It, it's creating it's creating partnerships and synergies. The, like the thing that I'm so curious about because you're clearly good at both sides of it. Is like you know, for the 21st century city, as it you know, it works to get you know affordable internet or free internet or however the internet makes it to all the folks there. Think of it as economic development. I mean, COVID has showed us that we can run an economy from home in part, right? Like the big question that I have is what's the optimal relationship between corporate telecom and government, right? Like how does that relationship behave in like the best outcome? Hmm. That, that's interesting. What's what's the ideal relationship? Um, yeah, yeah. Like, what would be an optimal? Yeah, like, how would you have it? <laughs> no, I think I think you want transparency. You want information sharing. You want the the, 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 the a lot of pieces you you want to that, but you you want to know. And this is with government in any corporation, right? Someone who's mm-hmm. doing business in your community respects that community, honors that community, and respects the goals and values that you brought to the table. Of your citizenry, right? We have to, we're citizens as well. Be good corporate citizen. You know, the corporate part is easy, right? How do you become a good citizen as a corporation? Um, yep. And and that involves a lot of listening about what the problems are and how you can help deploy resources there. 
you know, we have a lot of different products moving across different industries, um, the different segments of government, right? This one um, approach we have, one product we have, it was a government, it was a federal government bid product called FirstNet. FirstNet's an amazing product. It, it's a public safety network. Explaining to police departments why they should be on it, the different government agencies, how it can be useful, and approaching them with this is a two pronged approach. There's one, there's a sales conversation. And I don't get into that from a sales piece um, because that's not my relationship isn't sales. My relationship is what's going on in your community. Can this be impactful? Constant natural disasters, major events. We have products and services that we can roll different supports out there. And this is my team that can do that. I don't have to talk to them about the cost and my my, my stakeholders don't expect me to talk to them about the cost. I talk to them about the usefulness of a product and I know I can stand by what we offer and if, if, if they choose not to make the decision to go in that direction, I might not be happy with it, but that doesn't change my relationship with that official. Got it. Yeah. Uh, because I sit on other boards, I, I deal on other issues, and you want the community to be better off, right? Yeah. And what comes with trust in the, in this environment, because in the government affairs space and the lobbying space is really about, uh, like uh, the underpinning of it is being solid, ethical person. And how things operate, right? And, and, and exactly, so, like, and, and, and so that, like that's my name and reputation. You know, whether whether I work for this company or not, I'm not leading you astray or not leading you into down a bad position. I'm going to be straight with you, and that's how I represent myself. It's refreshing to hear that. Like you think of corporate America, and you and it's not like you don't think of people first. But this is definitely like the face of the people first approach to to doing business with the municipal governance, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. And, and so if, if, if it requires me to, to go outside and stand in four feet of snow to talk about <laughs> a, a, a neighbor's complaint or issue, I'm going to do it. You know, if I have to, you know, sit at someone's house for four or five hours to, to walk a, a stakeholder through something because it wasn't explained well or they have some extra questions about it, then I'm doing that. You try to go above and beyond and, um, you know, treat people how you want to be treated. But from a business standpoint, that's not always easy. But I, I love being in a place where if I want to spend more time helping a person answer a question or doing more for a person or a customer or a stakeholder or a resident or a citizen, it was no different than when I was working in the city of Gary, right? The mayor is all for going above and beyond and making somebody feel comfortable about things. And I think at t supports that in a way, too. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of companies do that, too. I'm not, not just speaking, you know, I, I love the company I work for, but I think a, a lot of people are moving in that direction right now. I would love not to be unique in that space. Yeah, th- like this is a learning experience for me. Like learning, learning the role of your corporate citizens within your within your state economy, within your regional economies, and your city economies, and and you know what what they do within the you know the municipal decision making framework. Like what the that role is. It's I feel like it's a really important thing to understand that 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 is on the table and that's an available thing, and like how this works and. Um, it's really cool to to learn about your work in Indiana. I really I really appreciate it. We're I'm just so thankful as a as a podcast you know host to I get to learn so many nuanced things about how the municipal governments like get it done. And this is such a unique point of view. I really appreciate it, Richard. I'm glad I, I'm glad I could add to that, and I'll I'll be willing to come back on anytime. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. Is there is there any other? Uh, I always offer an opportunity to like 
if there's any other big points or major things that you want to drop, it's a good opportunity to do it right now. If, if there's other things you want to get in there. Um, I, you know, I can't talk to you without saying geospatial econometrician. Um, <laughs> I try to use, I try to just bring it up in conversation every chance I get. And this, talk to you just one way of doing it. And so when I tell people, like, oh, you know, before I left Gary, I hired a geospatial econometrician and I have all kinds of information and insight on what's happening in our communities. Um, that's, well, I appreciate that, Richard. That's, that's what we do. There was a report that was just released in Indiana about a, just a lot of different things about the economic state of the whole entire state, but they called it the GPS report. And I was like, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's no geospatial data in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate, uh, really appreciate that. It's come a long way since we did our work at Gary together. Well, I appreciate your time. Look forward to having you back on sometime soon, Richard. All right. Thanks, Nigel. Enjoy talking with you, too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve. And special thanks to Richard for joining us today. Tune in Wednesday, March 3rd for our next episode with Veronica Brazino, Chief Economic Recovery Officer and Director of the Economic Development Department for the City of Austin, Texas.